Hi, I'm Marette Mandafro, um, originally from Ethiopia. I went to Harvard undergrad and medical school and am now a sleep-deprived internal medicine resident in the Bronx. Prior to starting residency, I had done a lot of work in HIV and public health in general. The Bronx is really calling me hard. I just truly felt like at this point in my life, in order to do the kind of medicine I wanted to do, be the kind of physician I, I wanted to be, I needed to be in the Bronx. That's a clip from the documentary All of Us and an introduction to Dr. Marette Mandefro, the subject of this podcast, which is a presentation of BC Women's Hospital and Plan Institute for Caring Citizenship. Dr. Mandefro was in Vancouver recently to talk about her work in the HIV community, her attempts to understand the reasons for and to do something about the alarming rates of HIV-positive and AIDS cases in the African-American population. She's one of the founders of Truth Aids, a nonprofit organization created to try to find new strategies to teach about health. And as well as being featured in the documentary All of Us, Dr. Mandefro is working on a film of her own called David the Piano Player, about social activist David Jenkins. At her presentations in Vancouver, she spoke about why film and media in general, as well as personal support networks, are becoming critical components of health education. You'll hear excerpts from those presentations, as well as my interview with her. Though a lot of her work started in the Bronx, Dr. Marette Mandefro is currently based in Philadelphia. It really started in Ethiopia, which is where I'm originally from, but that's where I did my graduate work in medical anthropology, working with the International Center for Research on Women. And they were doing a three-country study on HIV-positive patients' experiences of stigma. They were keeping diaries and I was in charge of analyzing a piece of that data. So I spent a lot of time reading stories and narratives and realizing how much people didn't say <laughs> to the outside world about those experiences. And at that time, I met a filmmaker and we became friends. I've been very uh, interested in HIV, more because I stumbled across it when I was doing my public health work. Um, but in the US, I don't know if you guys know the statistics there, it's been the number one killer uh, for African-American women ages 25 to 44 for about the last six to seven years and I was very interested in that statistic but more importantly there was a study that had just come out that showed in low-risk behaviors there was still a seven-fold likelihood of uh, contracting HIV in African-Americans and that juxtaposition of low-risk behavior and a seven-fold increase is really what propelled um, me to, to think a little more broadly I knew that biomedical constructions of risk weren't all behind it how do you describe yourself? Are you like do you, like do you describe yourself as a doctor or an anthropologist or a filmmaker? Or I say physician anthropologist um, for now. I've the one the last somewhere I've uh, you know I've been on the internet a lot. Someone described me as um, a social entrepreneur, which I think also can fit. Um, but I usually say you know physician anthropologist. And your direction now seems very much one of using a different kind of message to reach people. Can you, can you talk to me about that dis decision to, to change? Because you've got degrees coming up. Yeah, your the ears. Wazoo, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're, you know, you've got two degrees from Harvard. You went to school in the UK. Mm -hmm. You clearly were educated through a system that, that exists, yet you are 
choosing to speak to people in a very different way. What, when did the moment come that you thought you needed I to mean, do that? I mean, so my strategies are very rooted in popular education principles. I just think in general, uh, messages have to be relevant for people in order to um, not only listen, but then follow. Um, and I think we've been horrible about that in general. Um, health literacy is how I talk about all of these things. You know, how do you begin to teach people about their lifestyles, which requires a totally different language? And that's what drives me. And I think the interest in terms of keeping the discourse at that level relatable, accessible, is that you can start to connect dots that you would not otherwise be able to. So for me, you know, lifestyle as it relates to HIV is not that different from lifestyle as it relates to diabetes, hypertension, obesity. It's a way of talking to people about integrating kind of these other ways of looking at health in ways they can get it. I, I often talk about it as work, live, learn, play. You need to talk to people about all of those fears um, in order to teach about lifestyles. And that's just a much more, it's a much, it's a much more um, kind of everyday message. <laughs> and the the route to getting that message out though too is really important to you like mm -hmm. you've chosen to do that in some really interesting ways mm -hmm. can you talk about that a little bit sure i think we are moving into a media mediated world you know people don't read as much anymore um, i certainly stumbled upon media i had no intention of ever you know doing anything with film until a filmmaker approached me so, but once I, I saw what it could do and the access it got me, I just realized, oh my gosh, why haven't we caught on to this game in terms of translation and its reach? It's just so much more effective. Um, and a lot of the interventions as health professionals we worry about, we talk about the dose of an intervention. Like, you know, how many people hear this message is really related to whether you're going to get to your outcomes. So mm -hmm. the notion of going to where the people are seems to be exactly. something that you've really worked at in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. Can you talk to me a little bit about the truth circle and how mm -hmm. that works? Yeah. So um, I talk about the truth circles and kind of going to the people as unifying, unifying captive audiences that already exist, right? Um, truth circles are essentially about group work. It's about a group of people coming together to talk about things and understand things that they could not understand individually. It's very rooted in consciousness raising from the women's movement. It's the same thing that led to that movement. Um, I'm just trying to apply it into the primary prevention world and get people to think about uh, using group work as a primary prevention um, intervention. Usually we think of group work after someone's had a problem like trauma or substance abuse or HIV. They, actually a lot of that health work is done in groups but usually in a medical setting or in a public health setting and what I'm trying to do is bring that out into the water more to help people think critically about health. I think narrative-driven messages do this, right? They resonate with our humanity, but it does require safe spaces. You know, people don't just kind of tell their stories if they don't feel safe. So I think a lot of where these truth circles are happening is in places where people feel safe. They're all over, you know, sometimes in a school, sometimes in a beauty salon, wherever it is. It's usually, though, amongst peers that feel comfortable with each other. Um, and it's, once again, an organic way of getting to messages that are accessible and relevant um, for people. I didn't appreciate how important media frames were until I found myself in this world. And I think we're not trained, usually as whatever, scholars, researchers, practitioners, to necessarily think about communication. But it's profoundly important because it shapes how people think about risk, their perceptions of it, who's responsible for a problem, who's responsible for the causes. Um, and when you think differently around those issues, sometimes different resources open up or sometimes different people to pull into that discussion open up. So communication and media framing has been a huge part of what I do now and really translating. Um, so using the human rights framework 
there's really three principles. Uh, human rights rhetoric is very grounded in legal theory. It's like the lawyer's world. And a lot of what we've been doing is trying to make that into everyday language for people. There's three principles it usually goes by, which is the indivisibility of civil, political, social, and economic rights. And the way we teach about this now is just, you know, people experience problems all at the same time. It's not like diabetes on Monday, mental health on Tuesday, and like, you know, so that it reflects the integrated realities of everyday people. And therefore, the solutions have to be multiple and usually happening at the same time as well. The second point is the idea of agency in these populations, that, you know, they, they actually do have some answers to, to the next step forward. And this is all about resilience. You know, it's reframing health from a resilience perspective, which is a really hard thing to do when you've been trained in a disease-based system. I mean, this is a much older, longer story, and there are different versions of this everywhere, but it's a critical one, and I think a useful one um, to think about, because you have to expect something, right, in order for people to go forward. And I'm particularly interested and have been thinking through, and this is also a strain of my work, you know, what this means for service delivery in the health sector. The Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, which funds my work, you know, made a conscious decision pretty much, I think, in the last five years to, to split up their funding between health and health care. And this idea that, um, you know, health includes all of these other social determinants like housing, right, jobs, and um, education, things of that nature. And so what does then that mean for service delivery? The third principle and a really important, interesting discussion is around accountability you know, how you can begin to inform accountability. You know, to me, group work is, is an interesting way of talking about accountability as a means to creating it. Um, I think there's an internal discussion you have about this between, you know, you saw Tara kind of struggling with this notion that she was gonna have sex even though she had surgery, and you saw the group kind of say, no, no, this is where you say no. So there's that kind of level of discussion of accountability. And then there's also institutional accountabilities, right? Where do you have those spaces for what I, what I say to offload health for the work to actually get done? Because I don't think it's all gonna happen in the medical space. The second woman I'm following from my research is Tara Stanley. And I met her at clinic through the HIV social worker who brought her to my attention because she was just ready to tell her story. I first met Marette, I was at the clinic at Montefiore. And Miss Mandefro looked just like a patient. Who is it? Hi, Tara. It's Marat, Dr. Mandefro. Hi. Hi. I was like, you a doctor? <laughs> I love Dr. Mandefro. She's very sweet. What made me really click with her was that she was really concerned about me and my, me and my HIV. Hi, Tara. So this sort of leads me also to this notion of um, story. The idea of dealing with these big issues through either an individual or a group of individuals' stories yeah. seems to work, right? Yeah, it works. Story came on my radar as um, when I was doing my medical anthropology uh, thesis. I mean, that's what happened. When I was reading those illness narratives, those diaries that HIV-positive people um, had kept as part of this research study I was working on with, with the International Center for Research on Women, they were stories of really discrimination because they were looking specifically at um, stigma and the way stigma manifested itself. And 
the way it manifested itself in Ethiopia was like housing evictions, which is a much kind of bigger issue, but I'm learning it through the story of these diaries. So that's when I started connecting the dots um, and the power of story. Um, and really also story on people's terms, you know, the languages that they use as opposed to put the spins that people put. Because I think we live in a world where media spins a lot of things. Um, I mean, we're seeing this with the swine flu. It's a very fine line between frightening people um, and educating them. And I just realized there's a lot of people uh, in media who may not appreciate those nuances in the same kind of way. And there's a real role for, um, for those nuances when it comes to teaching people. Uh, so I became fascinated uh, with my graduate work on stories. Um, the other thing is the groups of people that are maybe very disenfranchised on their own, but as they get together, they somehow are able to, to do stuff. You know, there's a National Reproductive Health Collective in the United States called Sister Song that I'm a part of, and their tagline is doing things collectively that we cannot do individually. And I think storytelling in groups actually can act as um, an igniting agent, an animating force for people. When they make those connections, um, they get it and they want to do something. And that, what that buys you is ownership over your actions, which is sometimes what you're looking for, actually. Um, and I think the other part of it is, you know, there really, are, there really are constructs, especially when it comes to gender equity and some of these larger issues that are paralyzing, you know, violence, for example, that you don't even know um, you've been affected, you know? You don't even know it's, you've been affected until you start hearing it in other people's stories. You start, it's like a mirror being reflected back at you. Um, and I think those are incredibly powerful forces for change in the community. Um, I mean, change is a really, you know, such a big part of what you're talking about. It's, it's both change in how you act in terms of trying to get messages across, but it's also change on a very large societal mm -hmm. basis because one of the points that you bring up is the connection between violence and HIV positive. Honestly, that was part of what made me so angry. When I got to the Bronx, you know, at that point I had two Harvard degrees, you know, I'd been abroad, I'd been in all these educated circles and I couldn't believe how bad the problem of domestic violence was as well as um, you know, sexual assault, child sexual abuse, all of those numbers had, and yet I had, it had never come up on my radar in my education, my formal education. And that's when I realized, okay, we've got some problems way high up around kind of denial issues that we're just not willing to either address with, or then really trying to understand what are the obstacles for that knowledge kind of informing, informing us. I mean, I agree with you. I think it's one of the things, like thinking about violence and abuse as a transmission factor should be I mean, the, the initial studies around these things came out actually in the late 80s, 90s, you know. The main researchers that I interview in the film, I specifically picked because they did the first studies. And my first question to them was, you know, w w you did it in 1990. Why am I now coming in 2006 to interview to say, like, why haven't we incorporated what we know? And I think, honestly, it's because, A, we either you know, we don't know what to do about it because it, it is paralyzing. And then, it's, so it's just much easier to ignore it. You know, it's much easier to ignore it over and over because um, I read something once about trauma, how it means you have to confront human vulnerability and evil at the same time, which is a very, it's like a, you know, there's cognitive dissonance in trying to embrace both of those realities. You know, it's, you know talking about trauma is traumatizing for everyone involved, you know. Um, but I do believe these group kind of spaces and 
alternative methods can at least create openings for us to finally go there, which is really what I'm trying to do with my work. I mean, you asked me when was my turning point. My, my turning point was losing Tara. You know, in all honesty, at that point, the all of us argument kind of fell apart for me because I hadn't been through anything like that. Um, I'd never been abused. I'd never been sexually assaulted. So the Bronx was my education on violence. And that's what a Harvard graduate had to learn about. And, uh, you know, the patients were very much my teachers in that way. Um, and I think, you know, this idea of even learning from the drug abuser or learning from an HIV positive uh, person when you are supposedly the empowered or the educated is something that's a very tough discussion to even have in a public setting. But truthfully, that was my that was my turning point after I lost Tara. I was like, okay, this. You know, this is no longer a movie, it's no longer a research project. This is really time now for actions. And um, I think that's where privileged women who haven't had those experiences can kind of really le start leveraging that privilege to figure out what, how we can begin to address this epidemic of violence um, that, that uh, you know, in some ways is just an exa exacerbation of how women are regarded in society, really, right? I mean, it's an extreme manifestation of the power dynamics that we may have on a more subtle level. Um, so, and I didn't want to trivialize that point. It was very important to me. Yeah, it was very interesting in the film, you do a truth circle with your friends who are all affluent, mm -hmm. um, educated women, and, uh, and the many, almost all of the same power issues come up in the mm -hmm. conversation, right? Absolutely. And and. That, I think, was a, a, a huge, um, a, a really huge piece of the film for me was mm -hmm. recognizing, just in my own life, you know, I've been married to the same person for 19 years. We watched the film together. And that truth circle with your friends where those things were talked about both, I mean, made us both feel really uncomfortable in a, in a good way, right? right? Because it sparked a conversation right. around right. our own right. power struggles and our right. own way of dealing with these issues that you just don't talk about. Yeah. Well, in the research, you know, marriage has been a risk factor in the developing world for a very long time because of the norms that you can't say no to your husband. Mm. You know, you can't put a condom on because then it accuses you of being, you know, cheating or all of these other mm. things. And these are, once again, knowledge that we've known for decades. We just don't know what to do with it because now we're talking about marriage. It's not just those other people. It's also us and critiquing kind of what that means for everyone. And that's really uncomfortable to do. I mean, you know, I was surprised that my friends were even willing to say as much as they did on camera. And I, I continuously, I, I have a great set of friends who are, who trusted enough to do it. But um, to me, that's the gem of the film. It's having those two circles back to back. That's the heart of the story because it really speaks to the fact that there are issues that you cannot understand individually. But when you start talking to, groups of women, it really starts to click. And to me, that's the heart of it. You know, and in the same way, I think violence is something very hard to deal with individually. But when you start connecting these dots collectively, what I think can happen is we can start to do something about that. You know, the women who haven't been affected by these issues but get what that dynamic is about can really start to be forces of change. Well, and also I think it challenges our own perception of our lives. Like, we like to believe we live in a society that isn't violent. Right. Right? It's really easy right. to point at other countries and say, oh, look right. how violent they are. Right. We, we like to think that our society is very civil and, and right. not violent. Right. And yet that's not true. Right. Right. And, it, and, and then I had my own blind spot, right? Because I moved through the world very safe. I kind of 
took safety for granted. And I think that was one of the biggest things I wanted to teach about. You know, that's what Tara's story meant the most to me, was like showing me about my own blind spot when it came to safety. Despite all this education and, you know, and, and feeling like I was pretty aware, um, I just didn't realize what that meant. It's been really interesting to see what's happened with this film um, as it goes into schools in different settings and what it makes people think about. And I can tell you, doctors have a hard time with this film uh, in general, I think, over this issue in particular of all the groups, especially medical students. The idea that you're on the same side of the line with a patient is um, very uh, diametrically opposed to some of the indoctrination of your training. So it's been this really interesting discussion um, unfolding about you know, uh, this film. But um, the overall lesson for me has been how powerful media is as a translational tool. Um, in the US, there's a huge funding kind of push right now for what they're calling translational research, really pushing knowledge into practice. Um, the National Institute of Health has all this money set aside, a pretty big budget. It's going to, by the year 2012, it'll be like $500 million at least a year into translational research. And usually we think of that kind of, there's acronyms for these things, T1, T2, but bench to um, bedside to the patient, but then from the pa uh, patient into the community, which is really the context for the work that I'm doing now and the different ways you can do that. And media is a very powerful way to do that. Um, I think the other thing this film has done is reached an audience, the HIV non-affected audience. Um, there's all these people now after, you know, Showtime, there was I think 5.6 million viewers who saw it. And then I can't even tell you how many institutions at this point it's growing. I think we're at about 500 institutions nationally. And there's an, also a, a national network of public health practitioners using it. One of the federal agencies is our outreach arm, the National Alliance for State and Territorial AIDS Directors. Um, but it's a lot of people who've never thought about HIV kind of trying to figure out what to do. And what's been interesting is in my world, it's very siloed. Usually the HIV people know each other, we talk to each other, we, we see each other in the meetings, but what's the ask of all of these other people who, who haven't been connected to that issue? Um, and that's been experiment unfolding that really Truth AIDS has been trying to help out with. For example, I was, I was saying earlier, I would, you know, gym teachers, gym teachers have a lot of time and they want to do something now in health and, and they're great health workers, who knew? But, you know, that's what I mean by all these populations coming together, as well as school principals, you know, despite what policy says, if you have buy-in from a principal, you can do whatever you want in that school, actually, um, in terms of opening up these networks to do something. So, so what can... Like, what can people do? Like, what, hey, you're like exhausting to watch. <laughs> um, and, and, and you're super smart, and you obviously have just a, an, an amazing amount of energy, and you're devoted to doing this in a, in a way that's exciting and, and, and getting other people engaged. But what can that, like, those of us who don't know about this stuff, what can we do? So, Arthur Ashe had a saying, and he said, Start where you are, um, use what you have, do what you can. And change needs to happen at all kinds of levels. So, you know, I think it's just about getting involved. You know, visit an aid service organization in your city. See if they need any help. Um, get HIV tested, you know. If not, open up your own network and have a small truth circle. You know, whatever you feel comfortable with doing, whatever resonated with you, I think that's the point, is to do something um, more than you did before knowing about it. Because once you know about something, you're responsible enough for that information. So I don't think you have to do anything grandiose like start an organization and do all the crazy things that like, I'm doing. Like you do. <laughs> but um, 
I just think it means literally starting where you are. Because um, it's funny, we very much have fractured the social sector debate and, and kind of like the do-gooders do it and then everyone else doesn't. But I think we're entering a time where all of this stuff is blurring anyway. There's role for business in, in this and innovations and helping me think through like, you know, what do I know about running an NGO? Not a lot actually, you know what I mean? Like, and so I think what's been so pleasant for me is meeting all of these people who didn't know about these issues who've really handed over skill sets and are willing to kind of roll their sleeves up. Um, it's small scale and big scale. You know what I mean? As far as I'm concerned, if you had one truth circle in your home, great. That's amazing. And I would suggest doing that, you know? Um, I think something we didn't get into enough is parent-child communication. Mm -hmm. Starting, you know, go home and talk to your kids differently about these issues. You know, that is an action that could, you know, be life-saving for them. You don't even know. I mean, Chevelle's final recommendation in that film was talk to your mom, mm -hmm. which is a message you don't really think about when it comes to HIV. And I think when you start talking, about talking to your mom, once again, it's not just about HIV. This has relations for t teen pregnancy, STIs, all of that other stuff that we're not good at dealing with still. Well, and I think too, I guess, a part of the hurdle and part of what you're really addressing is that societally we've chosen or we think that that's somebody else's responsibility. Right. It's the teacher's job or it's the doctor's job or it's the social mm -hmm. worker's job. But really what you're saying is it's all of our jobs. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. It's all of us. You know, and that's why I mean, we didn't get into men, but men have a huge role in all of this. And, you know, actually, and I, I'm always telling them, talk to your brother. Start with your brother. Have a conversation, you know. Have those hard conversations with people you know in your peer set. Have you thought about this? You know, I think those kind of small acts are actually huge on a population level because it's what gets us to that next threshold um, when it comes to change on a societal level. Exciting, eh? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> mm -hmm. Thank you so much. For mm -hmm, your time. No problem. Dr. Marette Mandefro, speaking to me in Vancouver, you also heard excerpts from her presentations here and clips from the documentary film, All of Us. My thanks to Emily Apt from Pureland Pictures for permission to use clips from the documentary. You can find out more about the film on their website, allofusthemovie.com. You can find out more about Dr. Mandefro's organization, TruthAids. They're online at www.truthaids.org. This podcast was a presentation of BC Women's Hospital and Plan Institute for Caring Citizenship. For more information about BC Women's Hospital, visit their website at www.bcwomens.ca. For more information about how personal support networks deliver better health outcomes, please visit www.planinstitute.ca or contact us at info at My name is Robert Wiemet. Thanks for listening.